0: Let us open our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Uh, Luke chapter number 10. Uh, Luke is categorized in our Bibles as one of the four Gospel records chronicling the life of Jesus Christ. We have Matthew, that is at the beginning of the New Testament, then Mark, and then we have Luke. And so we're coming together to Luke's Gospel, and I'd like for you to find, if you would, the 10th chapter. Now, if you do not have a Bible, I want to encourage you to follow along with the scriptures that are on the screens as I'm reading here. It'll be available there as you follow along. But as we often say around here, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would love to give you one. All right? Not going to sell you one, okay? It's not a sales pitch. I want to give you a copy. And so please, at the end of every service, I'm standing here at the front of our auditorium, uh, meeting and praying with our members, greeting new guests. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, please let me know because I want to make sure that you get one. I want you to fill your life and your heart with God's Word, not just on Sundays, but on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays as we come together to hear the voice of God each day and every day. Well, Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, we're talking about this morning, the Lord of the Harvest the Lord of the harvest. So let's read together uh, Luke chapter 10 and verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and, and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. Now go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, Now, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Well, it is imperative that when we undergo any type of training, that we clearly know what we're being trained to do. Would you agree with that? I uh, have just recently reached a big milestone in mine and Keegan's relationship. He is now old enough to cut the grass without me. And I am telling you, parents who have younger children, this is a game changer. Now, as I've, I've begun training him, I've put him on my John Deere lawnmower and before we turned the blade on I wanted him to get used to driving it around the yard you know I don't want him running into trees or my fence or our vehicles or our house or whatever else is out there and fortunately at this point he's only run into one thing and that's the playground it's all together still but before we started engaging the blade and learning how to cut the grass, I put him on the John Deere, and I wanted him to get used to driving it around the yard. But I'm not training him to go joyriding on my lawnmower. They'd like to do that. Occasionally, Dad, can we go out and drive the lawnmower? That's not what I'm training him to do. His training has a purpose. And he clearly understands that purpose. If you were to ask him, what am I being trained by my father to do? This is exactly what he would say. My daddy is training me to cut the grass so that he don't have to. (laughs) And uh, he's fit in culturally quite well. In fact, the first day that I put him on the John Deere and put it on level one speed and engaged the blade and he began driving around the backyard, he decided he would stop and take his shirt off. <laughs> it doesn't really matter to me whether he wears a short, a shirt, what pace he's going, as long as he does what I am training him to do. Now, you get the point. We have to clearly know what we are being trained to do. Now, I'm afraid that we're not always clear about this in our relationship with Christ. What it is, he's training his followers to do. Now, I think we all know who Christ is discipling us to be. Christ is not discipling you to be like me. He's discipling you to be like him, him. That's who Christ is discipling us to be. But I'm not so sure we fully understand what Christ is discipling us to do, to do. And I mean all of us, by the way, all of us, not just missionaries, Not just pastors, not just evangelists, not just church planters and elders and deacons, but but all of us who follow Christ, all of us who claim to be disciples of the Lord Jesus. Well, our passage today in Luke chapter 10 is extremely clear on what Christ is discipling and training his followers to do. And let me state it for you in brief summary. Those who profess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Those who claim to be Christ followers. And if you claim to be a Christ follower this morning, I want you to verbally acknowledge that by saying amen. amen. All right? So those who claim to be Christ followers this morning are disciples who are being trained to make disciples. We are disciples who are being trained to make disciples. You got that? We are disciple-making disciples. That's who we are. That's what Christ is training us to do, to make disciples of all nations. Now, I got a question for you this week. Have you attempted to do that this week? Have you attempted to do that this week? Have you attempted to share the good news of the gospel this week with someone perhaps you work with, someone you live near, someone that you've interacted with, someone on the ball field, someone that you have just met, maybe someone you've known for a long time? If this is what Christ is training me to do, have I tried to do that this week? Now, I want you to know as Christ followers, we can do it, and we can do it with confidence. We can make disciples because we are under the authority and empowerment of the Lord of the harvest. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. He tells us in Luke chapter 10, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Well, who is the Lord of the harvest? Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. What does that mean exactly? We know him to be Lord of all. We know him to be... Lord of lords, but here we see him identified as Lord of the harvest. What does that mean? It means he rules and he reigns over the harvest. The harvest responds to his lordship. In other words, he controls the harvest, he controls it, he rules and reigns over it. It means he's responsible for giving the harvest. He's responsible for who the harvest is. He's responsible for what the harvest is. He's responsible for when it comes in. That's right. We don't go take the harvest. No, the Lord of the harvest gives it to us. Gives it to us. He's responsible for the harvest. But being the Lord of the harvest, we also know that he requests us to share in the work of the harvest, to join him in harvesting souls for the kingdom of God. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. And here's the question I want you to ask as we go through these verses together. What am I going to do about these verses? You know, every time I open my Bible and begin to prepare a sermon, whether it's for Wednesday night and Sunday night, and I know some of you think that I may not give as much attention to Wednesday night as I do Sunday morning, but I want you to know sometimes I give more attention to Wednesday than I do Sunday So whether it's Wednesday or Sunday or Saturday or whatever the case may be, when I open my Bible, I always ask these questions. What does God want us to know? What does God want us to do? What does God want us to know? What does God want us to do? Here's what I want you to ask this morning as we go through these verses together. What am I going to do about this? What am I going to do about this? How am I going to respond to what Christ is training me to do? Well, let's look at this passage and what the Lord of the Harvest is telling us to do. Number one, he's telling us to earnestly pray. Earnestly pray. So we come to verse 1, chapter 10. And uh, in addition to his 12 disciples, Jesus chooses to send out 72 others to go two by two into every town and share the gospel. And as he does, he gives them a prayer request. I believe we ought to take seriously every prayer request that our brothers and sisters share with us. But we must, we must pay attention when the Lord of the universe asks us to pray something specific. Here's a prayer request from Jesus this morning. I've given you some things that our church family has asked you to pray about. We're praying for the Luffmans. We're praying for the Rebels. We're praying for others in our church family for various needs. But let me give you this morning a prayer request from Jesus. Jesus wants us to pray about this. Verse 2, he says to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. All right, let's stop right there for a moment the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. This is the basis for his prayer request. First he says, the harvest is plentiful. You know what that means? The opportunities are great. The opportunities are great. There's a lot of opportunities, a lot of doors, a lot of people, a lot of Places who are ready to turn to faith in Christ. Who are ready to believe the gospel. The opportunities are great. But here's the problem. The laborers are few. The opportunities are great. But the workers, the volunteers, if you will, are small in number. This is the basis for the prayer request. Think about it where we live today. 7.5 billion people are in the world. That's a lot of people. That's why there's so much traffic out there. That's why all you boys are upset about your hunting land being torn down for houses. There's a lot of people around here. But do you know among 7.5 billion people, statistics tell us that only 2% of those are evangelical Christians? That is, only 2% of 7.5 billion people have heard the gospel and have believed the gospel and are following Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 2%. That that is close to four billion people in the world have even yet to be reached. they've not even even heard about Jesus. They've not even heard the gospel. They've not had anybody sit down with them and show them that there is a God in heaven who sent His Son to die on the cross and if they would just follow Him and believe in Him, their sins would be forgiven and their eternity promised in heaven. Take that global reality and bring it down to where we live today. The opportunities abound around us. Look at all the people that are moving into your neighborhood. That's no coincidence. God has put you in that place for this time and season of your life because those people need to hear the gospel. Think about the cultural opportunities that we have as a church, cultural opportunities that I'm not sure our region has ever had before like we do now. Our area is the fastest growing Hispanic population in the southeast. That's why I'm so thankful that Malcolm has moved here from Nicaragua, and we're beginning plans even now to launch a Bible study and a Spanish ministry through our church family so that we can reach those with their language in the name of Jesus Christ. And they're not the only ones, by the way. The opportunities culturally abound around us. They're They're great. They're great. But the problem is there aren't too many people willing to go. There aren't too many people willing to serve. There's not too many people willing to tell. So that's the basis for why Jesus comes and says, I need you to pray about something. Pray about this with me. And here it is, verse 2. Pray earnestly about this. Not casually, not sporadically. No, no, no. Pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. You know what that means? Put it at the top of your prayer list. Don't let a day go by where this isn't prayed over and over and over and over again. Pray it at the dinner table. Pray it before you go to sleep. Pray it in your congregations. Pray it, pray it, pray it, pray it. Here's what I want you to pray. I want you to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray that more disciples will make disciples. Pray that more disciples will make disciples. Now, now I have to wonder, as I've even evaluated myself, is this a regular routine of yours to pray like this? Do you regularly pray for more disciples to make disciples? To to pray it for our church. To to pray it for those who've yet to hear. To to pray it for yourself that God would use you to make more disciples. to, To pray it for your children even. Lord, use my children in the harvest fields of your work to make more disciples for the kingdom of God. You see, the problem, according to Jesus, is not the opportunities. The problem is the volunteers, the laborers, the ones willing to actually do what Christ is discipling them to do. You see, the work of evangelism, that is making disciples, begins not by printing up tracts, not by knocking on doors. It begins on our knees in prayer. Earnestly pray. But then he tells us, willingly go. Willingly go. Earnestly pray, but willingly go. So that's where we come to verse 3. Verse 3 he says, go your way. I almost read it like this, all right? Boys, girls, the harvest is great. The opportunities in each town is is unbelievable. But but the workers are few, so let's pray. Let's pray as I'm sending you that more like you will go and make disciples. And they're, yes, sir, yes, sir, we'll pray. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, now, now what are you standing here? Go, go, get out of here. Go, let's go, go your way. Let's do this. Go. There's a theme that I think seems to be resurfacing between our Wednesdays and Lord's Day studies. We've we've watched on Wednesday, Nehemiah willingly make himself available to God as an answer to his own prayers for the city of Jerusalem. And even here, we have a direct link between praying and going. Jesus is asking them and us not only to earnestly pray, but to willingly go. That is, be willing to be the answer to your prayers. Now, we are a generation that is always on the go, aren't we? Uh, Some of you... And maybe wrongfully so, have a busy day ahead of you. You're going to go from home to here, and from here to somewhere else, and from there to somewhere else, and to there, from there. And then. I'm not so sure the Lord ever wanted you to treat the Lord's day that way. That's a side note, not in my notes, just the Holy Spirit wanted me to say it. We're always on the go. We do it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I mean, it feels like we're rushing around all the time, barely breathing. Always something to do. Always somewhere to be. And as we go, we are to be on mission. As we go, we are to be on mission. This is the essence of the Great Commission. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, Go and make disciples of all nations. The idea being, as you go, as you go, or wherever you go, Make disciples. Make disciples. This is not just about those who leave here and go across the seas there to make disciples. No, this is all of us. As you're on the go, as you're going to work, as you go home, as you go to the store, as you go to church, as you go and wherever you go, make disciples. Make disciples. So as parents, I have a great responsibility. I need to go home and make disciples as a pastor, I want to come to church. I want to go to church and make disciples. I want to, I want to, I want to go to the ball field and make disciples. I want, to, I want to go out and do whatever I can to attempt to bring people to Jesus Christ. Go, he says, willingly go and make disciples. And of course, As we go, he gives us some basic instructions. Beginning at verse 3, he says, As you go, these are not on the screen, but let me just mention them to you. Number one, he says, As you go, look to Jesus as your strength. Look to Jesus as your strength. Verse 3, Jesus says this Look, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now that's quite a picture, isn't it? I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. It describes Christ's mission, watch this, as a vulnerable one. God does not send us out as celebrities among admirers, He sends us out as lambs among wolves. We're called to take the gospel into environments that are sometimes, church family, less than cozy. And to people who can be more than apathetic. Like lambs in the midst of wolves. Sometimes Jesus is saying here, the message of God will be viciously rejected. The word of God will be violently assaulted. And yes, even you and I, the messengers of God, will be vindictively mistreated. But... He is the Lord of the harvest. That means he is Lord over the harvest that's coming in. He's Lord over the lambs and who he is sending out. And he is Lord over the wolves who are going to try to stop us. He's Lord of it all. And that is confidence in our hearts that we can look to the Lord of the harvest for strength. That is church family. We can make disciples as lambs among wolves through Christ who strengthens us. Some of you are sitting here right now thinking this morning, there's no way I could serve God or do what other people do or tell anybody else about the gospel because I am so weak in whatever this particular area is in my life. I'm weak, 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 weak. Well, I mean, no disrespect, but join the club. We're all weak. We all have personality issues. We all have trouble in speaking confidently about things that we fear are going to be turned back on us. We all have weakness. But when you study the Bible, here's what the Scripture clearly says. The Scripture clearly says that the whole idea of the Christian life is to get you and I to depend upon God. He doesn't say, I want you to go out there confidently in your flesh and in your skills and in your education and what you've seen growing up in church life. No, no, no. I want you to go feeling like you can't do this. In fact, I want you to go out there knowing that you are weak and that you're the low class of society and that the culture by and large doesn't want to hear from you or to listen to what you have to say. When you go with that mindset, it is then, Jesus says, I can use you. I was listening to Alistair Begg preach a message this week and he says something along these lines. I should have written it down. If dependence is the objective, then weakness is the advantage. If God's objective in your life is for you to depend upon Him, then the weaker you are, the more effective you will be. So we're not waiting for strength, we're not waiting until we get smarter. We're not waiting until we have more experience. No, we're going. And we're going to go in our weakness as lambs among wolves. I don't know why I can't say that this morning. But lambs among wolves because Jesus is our strength. Look to Jesus as your strength. Secondly, don't get distracted from the mission. Don't get distracted from the mission. Look at verse 4. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Now, some of you introverts love that last phrase. I don't have to talk to anybody. This is great. Sign me up. <laughs> now, I don't have time to linger here. I think you're sensible enough to study this for yourself and conclude that this is not a blanket prohibition against these things, okay? It's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is calling us to simplicity. 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 All right. Don't overpack. Don't overpack. Don't clutter your life. Don't get so wrapped up with so much stuff that you're distracted from actually fulfilling the mission. And let's be honest this morning. I'm not yelling at you. I'm yelling at me and it's just coming out at you. Some of us can't and don't serve the gospel of Jesus in the harvest fields of our lives because we like our stuff too much. We like our investments We like our clubs that we're a part of. We like the boats that we drive and the toys that we have and all of these sort of things that if God did say, pack up and go, we don't even know how we could do it. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't be so preoccupied. Don't be so consumed with all these possessions, so much that you're holding on to, that you're distracted from the mission. Stick to the mission. Stick to the mission. I think one of the hardest steps in going where Christ has called us to go is to take that first and sacrificial step of letting go. Stick to the mission. The third thing he says is be content with how the Lord provides Be content with how the Lord provides. From verse 5 to verse 8, I don't have time to read it again, but Jesus talks about his provision for them. Specifically in how he would provide for their housing and their meals and their livelihood. Even he talks about their wages here as they go and carry out the mission. And the instruction is given from the standpoint that they were not to take advantage of people. He said, I want you to go and mistreat others or manipulate them. I want you to trust God that he will provide for you. And by the way, don't don't we see this as one of the prevalent marks of false teachers today? Manipulating people, mistreating people to pad their pockets in order to go forward into the work of God. This is what Jesus is warning us about. You just trust God. God will provide for you. God will provide for you. Now, this is exactly where we live, isn't it? It's a reminder that as we go and give for God, He will provide and care for us. That's what Philippians 4.19 promises. My God will supply every need of yours according to, not your riches, all right, according to His riches of his grace now being content with how the lord provides includes you and i refusing to make deals with god lord i'll go here i'll tell more about jesus i'll serve in the church if you do this for me no no no. that's not how god works to be content with what he is doing and what he has done is to say that no no deals no deals It's it's rejecting any spirit of entitlement that often arises in our hearts. It's just simply saying, this is where God has called me to be. This is what God has called me to do, and I'm going to trust him to provide. All right, there's a fourth one, and I'm going to move on to the last point. These are basic instructions, by the way. Preach the good news of the gospel. So again, let's, let's, let's just recap this. As you go, he says, look to Jesus as your strength. Don't get distracted from the mission. Pe- be content with how the Lord provides and preach the good news of the gospel. Say to them, verse 9, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, if you take a literalistic wooden interpretation of the scriptures and verses like this are going to mess you up, Jesus is not saying, I want you to literally go to that man that lives next to you. His name is Charwin. And I want you to tell him that the kingdom of God is near to him. If Charwin's an unbeliever, he's like, can you speak English? Like, what are you, what are you saying here? I have no idea what you mean by that. All right, this is a summary. Luke is giving us a summary, okay? Okay. What do we know about the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is something that God does. It's, it's not something that we do. So he says, as we go, we are not preaching ourselves. We are preaching Christ. We are preaching what God has done for us in Jesus. This, this whole summary of the kingdom of God being near to you, he says, I want you to go and preach the gospel. I want you to go and tell everybody what God has done for them in Jesus Christ, that they were born into this world as sinners separated from God. You did not have to learn to become a sinner. You are a sinner because you was born a sinner. Nobody had to teach that to you. When God created this world, he created it perfectly, but man messed it up. We got prideful and selfish and we disobeyed God. And Adam and Eve, the first of God's creation, sinned against God. And now every person who has ever been born is born into sin. And that's a big problem. It's a big problem because that means sin causes us to be at a distance from God. God, who is perfect and sinless and holy and righteous, He cannot be anywhere near sin, anywhere near it. All right. Well, Pastor, I'll, I'll just I'll do better. You know, I'll I'll uh, pull myself uh, up by my bootstraps, as they say, and I'll uh, I'll focus on good morals and good values, and I'll vote the right way, and I'll attend church every once in a while. I love my neighbor, and and uh, all this kind of stuff. I'll do all these good things, and maybe it'll balance itself out. Well, th- th- that's that's a problem too. Is because God says you can never balance it out, never. Romans chapter three says it is impossible Possible for us to be right with God through our good works. OK? Well, now we have a no problem, another problem. You see, here's the thing about the gospel. We can't get to the good news until you weed through all the big problems. The big problem is, I'm a sinner. The big problem is I can't balance it out. Another big problem is, if I die like this, not only am I separated from God now, I'll be separated from Him forever. You see, some of you are trying to answer those questions. How did I get here? Well, you got here because God. What am I doing here? You're you're here to worship God, to glorify Him. Well, where am I going? I can't answer that for you. I can tell you about where people go. You see, heaven, heaven is the place where God dwells. It's a place of perfection. And those who belong to God go to heaven. But those who are still in their sins go to a place called hell. That's what happens after life. Death and then heaven or hell. Well, if you're telling me I was born a sinner and that I can't balance it out nothing I can do to even earn God's favor and acceptance in my life, then, then Pastor, you're, you're, you're telling me that we're all just messed up. Well, we would be. But let me tell you how much the God of heaven loves you. He sent himself because he's the only one. He's the only one who can make us right with him. He's the only one. He sent Himself. God, who is a spirit, took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He miraculously entered the virgin womb of a woman named Mary. She carried Jesus for nine months. She gave birth to Him. He lived. And moms and dads, He was the perfect child. Sinless. Sinless. You say, that's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. But it's the only way. It's the only way. He's sinless. He's, he's, He's perfect. And he did that for 33 and a half years until one day he willingly let a bunch of wicked Roman soldiers who hated him murder his life. But notice that I said he willingly let them do it. He said, No man took my life. I laid it down. This was the reason I came. I came because you can't balance the scales. I came because you can never be right with God on your own measure. I came because you can never die for your sins. I had to do it, Jesus says. And so he comes, and in perfection, he lets himself be killed, and he dies, and he's buried. And through that sacrifice, His blood now becomes the miraculous power by which all your sins are washed away. We call it the great transaction. He took my sin and He put it on Himself. On the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might know the righteousness of God he took my sin he put it on himself and you know what he does when I come to him in faith he takes his perfection and he puts it on us so guess what sinner friend like myself When you come to faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord of Lords and the one and only Savior, he does not look at you as the sinner you know you to be. He looks at you as perfectly righteous because he doesn't see me. He sees Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, did I tell you he came back to life? And that's what we call the exclamation point. He's showing off. He's here giving us assurance and confidence that just as I came back to life, you too will live forever. All of that is summarized by you go tell them the kingdom of God is near. Preach the gospel. Of course, we're reminded in verses 10 through 16 that not everyone will receive the good news. will they? Some are going to reject the gospel. And the Lord is very clear that his wrath will be poured out on those who do reject his son. In fact, the Lord uses language here about the degrees of punishment. And in case you're new to studying the Bible, I do want to help you to understand that there are degrees of reward in heaven. And there are degrees of punishment in hell. Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon had it easy compared to those like Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. And most of us who don't even know a whole lot about the Bible understand the word Sodom. I mean, God destroyed the whole city because of their wickedness. But then He says, "People like Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, you—you you had me, you had me. I came to you, and you still rejected me." So compared to what judgment and wrath Sodom experienced, that doesn't compare to what you're going to experience. It's a reminder that the greatest judgment will be on those who have had the greatest opportunity. But then we leave that to God. Our our responsibility, church family, is not to determine who will and who won't. Our responsibility is to give the gospel to all, knowing that any fruit that we see is a result of Christ working through us. And so he says, earnestly pray and willingly go. Let me give you this final one because the kids checked out a long time ago. And so have I. Number three, humbly rejoice. Humbly rejoice. It's funny. I get to my third point, and he's telling me to humbly rejoice, and I'm a little irritated. The 72 return, and uh, they return rejoicing over what they experienced. But here's what's fascinating their excitement seems to be misguided at first. Because look, verse 17. They focus more on the work that their hands have done for God. I, I just picture this. They come but They're excited. Verse 17. Lord, Lord, this is unbelievable. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And of all the things that we expect the Lord to say, here's what he says. Verse 18. It's kind of puzzling, interesting. He said to them, You know, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. As if to say, uh, beware of pride. I've seen pride, Jesus says, take down the highest in my service. And he goes on in verse 19 to say, you know, it's true, I have given you authority. I have given you power. But, verse 20... Don't rejoice in this. Instead, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. It seems to me that these 72 disciples returned with a misplaced joy. They seem to be more excited about the work of the harvest than they were the Lord of the harvest. Do you know that it's possible to be involved in the Lord's work but not know the Lord Himself? Now, to be clear, I don't believe that's what's happening in verse, it, with these 72 in Luke chapter 10, but it does remind me of what Jesus said in Matthew 7. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, do many mighty works? And then Jesus said, I'm going to declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. It's possible, it's possible to be involved in the Lord's work and not know the Lord himself. So may it be as a sound of warning this morning that you be careful about evaluating the reality of your relationship with God on the basis of what you do or have experienced. But for those of you who do know the Lord this morning, listen carefully. Our joy cannot be grounded in what we have done for Jesus, but in what he has done for us. Rejoice not in your good works, but in the fact that your name is written in heaven. Jeremiah chapter 9, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows me. That he knows me. I think it's often a temptation to be so wrapped up in what our hands are doing for Jesus that we neglect to worship Him in the reality that we belong to Him. Now here's where our passage concludes. It concludes with a scene of Jesus Christ Himself rejoicing. And I challenge you to do your homework because I, along with Legan Duncan and John Piper, believe that this is the only time we ever see Christ in the Gospels actually rejoicing. Now, we see Him commending us to rejoice and things of that nature, but a scene where we actually see Him rejoicing, like we see Him weeping and mourning in other cases. So so to me, that's that's a striking mark in and of itself. If this is the only passage in the Gospels of Jesus rejoicing, then we need to know why He's rejoicing and how that has an impact on us. Now, there are three statements I want to give you from these closing verses as we see this. Number one, the first statement is this. No one comes to the knowledge of salvation outside of the sovereign will of God. I want to say that again. No one comes to the knowledge of salvation outside of the sovereign will of God. Verse 21. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden, hidden, Hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Well, who are the wise and understanding? He's not necessarily talking about the intellectual alone or the education alone. No, no. He's talking about those who are wise in their own eyes. Those who think they know better than the gospel. Those who are so filled with themselves and pride that they're they're not willing to come to the gospel. Jesus is saying, look, the Holy Spirit has hidden gospel truth to the prideful. And he has revealed it to the humble, to little children. And why has he done this? Look at the last part of verse 21. Because this was the Father's gracious will. It was his will to do this. It's it's the will of God to hide the gospel from whom he wants to hide it and to give the gospel to whom he wants to give it. Now, I know that messes with some of you, but you're going to have to argue with Jesus. That is the gospel. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. He chooses by his own word whom sees it and who has rejected it. And that is on the basis of our pride and humility. And then he says in verse 22, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So we see... That the knowledge of salvation only comes at the hand of the sovereign will of God. Here's the second statement I want you to see in closing. You can't know God unless you know Jesus. That's what he says. You can't know God unless you know Jesus. Verse 22. No one knows the Father except anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You want to know who God is? Then you need to know Jesus. But unless you're willing to get to know Jesus, you'll never know who God is. John said that in his epistles. He who has the Son has life, has God. He who does not have the Son has not life, has not God. So it doesn't matter what religion you claim to follow. You can say you worship God all you want to, but if you don't worship Jesus, you don't know God. I say that in love. And I say that with an urgent plea to turn from who you think God is and to see who God is. And if you want to see who God is, you have to look at Jesus Christ and him alone this morning. No one knows God unless they know Jesus. Here's the third thing. Jesus rejoices. He rejoices over the sovereign, saving grace of God for sinners. Verse 21 says he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. I wonder what that looked like. He then, in verse 23, turned to his disciples and said, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. You know, we talk about angels in heaven rejoicing over sinners who repent. We write songs about it. But how can we never talk about Jesus rejoicing over sinners? Isn't that even greater? Sure, the angels are rejoicing over the two who are going to be baptized this morning. But here we have a beautiful scene of Jesus also rejoicing. He's rejoicing over the sovereign, saving grace of God on sinners. He's rejoicing over those who are going to be baptized this morning. He rejoiced in my office about 8 o'clock last night, Cody, when you called on Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He stood and he rejoiced that his sovereign grace had been received. Think about that. What gets you excited? If you're a Jets fan, I know what it's not. Based upon how things go tomorrow night, we're right there with you. But truly, what gets you excited? Jesus says, look, humbly rejoice and rejoice that your name is written in heaven and then rejoice when a new name is written there along with yours. I've took way more time than I intended to My thoughts have been greatly scattered and distracted, but I do need to make this point and we're going to pray. As disciples of Christ, we need to have clear understanding what he is discipling us to do. We are disciples who are being trained to make disciples. That's what he's discipled you today. Not for us to sit on our hands and do nothing. So how do we go about doing that? Start by praying. Start by praying. And then as you pray, go, go. I'm not asking you to pack up and go to the Middle East, but maybe some of you should. What I'm telling you is when you go down to the restaurant today, go and make disciples. When you go home and you're talking to your neighbor because he cut the grass on your side of the field instead of where he's supposed to stay, just remember I'm making disciples. And so on and so forth. You get the point. This is what God is training us to do, to pray, to go. And then when God uses us, may we rejoice the right way, humbly. I asked you at the beginning of this sermon, as we walk through this passage together, you need to sincerely ask yourself, what are we going to do about these verses? And so that's how we're going to close. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? God did not put this in here for information alone. He put this in here to transform our lives and to cause us to think differently and see differently and pray differently and talk differently. To be like him and to make his mission our mission. To do what he came to do. To make disciples of all nations. Let's stand together for prayer, would you please?